Stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Corn in the fields and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is sure they come. I work for the union because she's so good to me. Sing along with this song, can we? Yeah. La, 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 la. Hey, you can carry it too. That's pretty good. I didn't know that. Yeah, I used to. I used to be a musician and singer. Really? You you have a very uh, mixed and varied career. Oh, it's time for the organic farm stand. My name is Richard Hill. And hey, Hill. Richard. Hi there, Laura. Laura Modlin sitting right across the console. Steve Mutto at Masaro Farm. Steve, hello. Hi. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Uh, there was an, uh, an election recently, I understand. Yes, yes. Uh, <clears throat> state elections, you know, in every town and local elections and such. Ah. Um, so, yes, yes, I was um, ran for our Woodbridge Board of Selectmen, and I um, will begin my term uh, in January. Wow. Congratulations. You'll be great. Thank you. Appreciate it. You better be great. Yeah, you better. You're going to be reflecting on us, and that's more important than the town, you know? <laughs> Understood. <laughs> the organic farm stand depends on you, sir. Do we have to call you sir now? No, no. And, Mr. and uh, I don't think my meetings interfere with our radio slot, so we're okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, do not neglect your duties. That's definitely important. Uh, so... This is incredible. This is getting closer and closer to winter solstice. You're going to give you a report in a second. But, uh-huh. I mean, today was had that sense of impending. Oh, it was so of, cold this morning. Approaching winter. What, what was the temperature up in? 24. Oh, yeah. And I went out on my balcony to because to, it was a beautiful sunrise to take a picture, and it was very cold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You got the picture, though. I got the picture. That's all that matters. Yeah. Sometimes your camera's... Your, your phones can freeze up in this in this kind of weather. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have a show. We have we do have a, a pretty impressive. I'm uh, very excited about our show today. Action packed. 
Yeah, well, um, our our special guest today is Frank Pagliaro, um, and him and I go way back. In the fall of 2007, he was my neighbor um, in Easton. He lived, um, the you know, n- near me, um, and he, when I started writing for the Easton newspaper that fall, he told me about the 200th anniversary of the first re- recorded meteorite strike in North America called the Weston meteorite. And it was actually land that's now known as Easton because Easton became part of, you know, formed from part of Weston. And it was my first, it ended up being my first big newspaper story. And it really got me um, incentivized to write about the natural world. Wow. Yeah. So he's our guest. He's going to talk about the meteorite. Right. And the Olden day times. He, yeah, the meteorite right. was struck on December 14th um, in 1807, and he's going to tell us about what life was like back then. And he has been doing, he's a historian, he's been doing some research on tracing the, you know, the, the, the way farming has evolved. And the way it was. Yeah. And what was it? Was there even farming back in? Yeah, in, and, and he, you know, but he said to me, well, anyway, I don't want to, you know, yeah. but he, he, he's, it'll be very interesting. He's a very interesting person. Okay. Well, we will look forward to being yeah. uh, entranced. Enthralled. And, yeah. It's a good, better, good, better word. All right. And it, of course, we will have the, the solar lunar report coming right up and we will also have the small farm report coming from Masara Farm just moments away. And this is the first Thursday of the month, so we will have Vincent Kay's honeybee report coming up. Be interesting to hear how he put the how he put the bees to uh, bed. They don't hibernate, we know that much. No. But maybe he can tell us what I w- I want to ask him. We know, I think, and maybe even Steve can tell us something about this, that the all the wasps and bumblebees do not make it through. They don't hibernate. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, I mean, they, they don't, uh, what should I say, uh, overwinter. I mean, they, they... They don't, like, go burrow somewhere. Into, I, you know. I think I some know. do. Some Maybe, do. yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you know anything about that, Steve? Well, it's certainly not my area of expertise, <laughs> um, so we, we might best uh, leave that to Vincent, but uh, I don't think they all... Um, they, they, they overwinter. I think you know a few hard freezes is going to, you know, um, kill off some of the uh, some of the other bees, yeah. and and perhaps it's their um, eggs that survive, or those that you know get um, underground pretty well and, and can protect themselves and, and hibernate. But mm-hmm. I, I don't think most of the, those wasps um, make it through the winter. Yeah, that's that's my that's my. Um sense of uh, how I've distilled all the times that Vincent has told us this information and I've retained a little bit of it. But Vincent will be here soon. Uh, and uh, and then our special guest, Frank Pagliaro, will be here at 1230. So that's uh, the lineup. It's, uh, you know, it's all lined up. It's. I think it's going to be a great show. I think it's going to be one of our best ever. And <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> yeah, that's... It could be, it could be a mediocre show. I mean, you no, know, it can't be a mediocre show. Well, if you if you like, you know, just are bragging about it before. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you, 
you can't you can't raise expectations. We hope lower, it will be a great show. Lower expectations than when the show is even like pretty good. People will be like impressed. Okay. So, okay. I, okay. I'm in. I'm. I'm in with the program now. See, that's what I've learned from doing decades of radio is like lower expectations right from the beginning, but. Too late because you've already raised them. <laughs> we'll have to just wait and see. We'll see what happens. All right. Well, let's hear. Let's hear it. Uh, I want to know all about the winter pro- approaching winter solstice and uh, daylight and. Well, the the big like news that. about the winter solstice is that it's in fourteen days. Uh huh. And uh-huh. it is actually on the day of our next show. Beautiful. Which is. Very exciting, I think. That is. But um, today, sunrise was at 7.04, and sunset will be at 4.23. And so we're going to have a total of (laughs) nine hours and 19 minutes, which is, we've lost 32 minutes since last show, which was three weeks ago. And so we, how many minutes do you think we have left to lose before, in the next two weeks? Steve, Richard? Oh, I'm going to say 12. What do you think, Steve? Maybe closer to 30. I don't know. <laughs> wow. Steve, <laughs> you're looking. We don't live in Norway, for God's sakes. Okay, it's um, actually seven minutes left to lose. Okay, see, it was good. Well, that's it's, good news. Yeah, it's only seven more minutes. And then in two minutes and one day, I mean, in two weeks and one day, it'll start getting building again and then on in, starting in january it can start saying how many minutes we've gained yeah yeah, yeah. fantastic yeah it's uh, i mean it, it's pretty shocking and unacceptable that we only we you know that the there are less that you know it we can't even get till four. Thir- we can't even get to four thirty before it starts. Yeah, yeah I know, it's and it's weird because the whole thing when we went, when we fell back to standard time, and you know that was very confusing too. <laughs> you know we- what I do? I do this thing where I refu- I kind of protest against the cha- the time change. I don't like it either. And I don't change my clock. I just wait till. Well, I waited. I, I wait till daylight savings time again. Then my clock becomes correct again. But I never. So I have to kind oh. of. When I look at my clock, um, I'll you know, Leslie looks at the clock and she go. She'll look at the clock and I'll say, "What time isn't it?" Uh, well, I, I then, left one on daylight savings time just to play chicken with myself to see how long it would take me, and I have since though changed it. You changed it. Yeah, I changed it in my car, but. Not in my bedroom. Oh, the car's the worst, though. That's very confusing because then you're driving places and uh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, my, I, I always put my clock a little bit ahead in the car just so I'll, you know, I, I'll have oh. those extra couple of minutes, when, which I um, pretty much needed today because of the parking issues out front. All right. Solar lunar. Then we have the moon. Now we're going to yeah. move on to the moon. Um December 5th, two days ago, was last quarter moon. And if you saw the, the beautiful sunrise today, you would have seen the, the crescent moon um, in, you know, in the sky at sunrise. But, of course, I don't think you did that. Um, this five day, in five days, it's our new moon. And the full cold moon will rise on December 26th. And it's, um, 
It's the first full moon after the winter solstice, and it's not a super moon. However, December's full moon has a high trajectory in the sky, meaning it will be above the horizon for longer than most full moons, which I thought was very interesting. Wait a minute. Explain that. Okay, so December's full moon will... um, it just it'll be above the horizon for longer than most full moons. So that means to say it'll it'll rise earlier. Is that what it it'll go higher? Okay. And so it's it's going to be higher, and we'll spend more time above the horizon. Mm. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? No. Okay. But, <laughs> um, but I'll, but wor- I'll work on it. Venus right now is currently bright in the morning sky in these early days of December this year. On the morning of December 9th, which is in two days, the crescent moon and Venus will meet up and hang out really close together. So that should be Mm. pretty. And for all of December, Jupiter will be visible to the naked eye every evening, which is when you're awake. So that's good. (laughs) Um, It will be especially easy to locate on the 21st and 22nd when um, it will meet up with the moon, the waning moon. On the evening of December 17th, Saturn will be just above the moon from 530 on. Is that visible? It will be visible, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, on December fourteenth, is gonna ha- we're gonna have the best meteor shower of twenty twenty three, the Geminids, and it will be a moonless night. So if you're somewhere where the sky is clear and um, and there's not a lot of light pollution, you might be able to see them because there should be you should be able to see in rural areas like up to a hundred an hour. Uh, which date again is that? That's December 14th, so a week from today. Mm. Next Thursday, um, it's going to be the peak of it. Um, and then just a couple more things. According to the Old Farmer's Almanac, 2023-2024, their weather map, New England will be mild and snowy. Um, and the North American total solar eclipse is now 123 days away, April 8th, 2024. And we're going to have, that's going to be a whole countdown because that's a big deal. And Hanukkah begins tonight at sundown, the festival of lights. So happy Hanukkah to those observing it. And it is National Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. This is December 7th. Yes, it is. This is Pearl Harbor Day. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's my report. A day that will live in infamy. It it will. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, with everything going on in the world, it's it's just nice to, to, you know, remember times before, too, I think. We got through it. Yep. Yeah. But will we get through uh, the 2024 election? That's the question. Will we survive? <laughs> I, 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 I can't predict that. <laughs> yeah. There are... There are challenges ahead. Let's put it that way. There are challenges ahead, and um, but we're up for it. we're up for it. We will get through. Yeah, and uh, maybe we should mention now the shows that we're working on. Oh, we the, have yeah for the new year because we have some ideas. Well, well, we have the show next. Our next show. Do you, should I mention that? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, on 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 the winter hall on the winter solstice is. Um, 
We're going to have, just a few weeks ago, Norwalk, um, you know, put put a ban on the gas-powered leaf blowers. It's going to be, it's going to come in increments, and um, we're going to have... two women who are intricately involved in, in getting this to come about to on our show on the 21st to discuss it from an environmental point of view and from a legal point of view for other, t- in case other towns are, want to try to do the same. It, you know, cause I think the more towns that do it, the more likely it is to happen on the state level. Are you listening, Steve? Yes. So, oh yeah, Just, your town. Now that you're, now that you're yeah, Woodbridge, um, yeah, but, but but that I think that'll be a very interesting show. And then in January, we um, have Roman from Moonsmoke Bakery, um, which he has some very interesting things to talk about baking and yeah. and using you know, old grains and how he sources his, his grains and such. Yeah. He's a, an organic artisanal bakery baker. Yeah. He and does. He, yeah. He, he does. bakes about three loafs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and he, he, has, he takes them to the market, the okay. farmer's markets. And pe- people go, people like get into like vicious fistfights trying to get those loaves of bread. They do, but um, you can do pre-orders with him. But I've had his um, chocolate croissants, and they're, the, I have to say, the best chocolate croissants I've ever had. I mean, they're so, his stuff is so good. It shows you, because they're not extremely sweet or anything. It's just hmm. flavorful. Yep, rich and flavorful. Butter, probably, a lot of butter. I think there's a lot of butter in it, yeah. yeah. Always, uh, always the key to... Uh, delicious baking. Listen, um, we have one other thing planned in uh, potentially in January, and that is our meteorological. Uh, oh yeah, report. that's yeah. gonna. That's we're hoping for the first show in January to have a, um, a meteorologist um, to talk about forecasting weather, which is very important, of course, for farmers. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a question I'll, I'll, I'll put to you, Steve. Are you, are you kind I'm of finished. wind down? Yep. Yeah, so maybe first question to you, Steve. Like, what do you do? Like, do you even try to follow the weather forecasts? And we know how they are so changeable, not to say un, unreliable. But, I mean, how much does the weather, you know, day-to-day uh, impact farming? And, of course, now things are are so um, metamorphized or metamorphosed or something in terms of, you know, the changing of the season. But what, uh, you know, what, how does it, like how important are, are, how much are you tuned into weather? Let's put it that way. Well, uh, so I, I'd like to think I'm deeply in tune with, with the weather, but I'm certainly watching it uh, and um, it's impacting, you know, a lot of the decisions I'd make, but this is mostly on a, on a sort of short term basis. I don't really look into the long term forecasts. Um, you know, I might look at long term climate change implications. And that's certainly part of how I um, have gone about planning the farm here and implementing various practices and, and strategies throughout the farm. But, um, you know, the weather app on my phone is, is certainly the most uh, frequently visited <laughs> So I'm kind of constantly looking at 
what is the forecast today as it's changing and, and over the next few days so that we can strategize the work that we do. So, you know, today uh, it was quite cold and, and it really hasn't warmed up. We've yet to have the sun break through and, and that kind of impacts the kind of tasks that we can get into. Um, and in the summer when it's really hot, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to manage um, our, our tasks then and all the things that need to get done. So uh, weather is pretty critical for, for what what we do and choose to do and how we plan uh, on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis. Uh, like to what, how, how good are you, you know, just like intuitively at sensing changes in the weather? You know, we've, we've got a good location here. We're kind of near the top of a hill. You can sort of see things coming, storms, or, you know, whether they're going to pass us or, or get to us. You never quite know. But um, I think like anyone who's been in a, in a place for a while, you, you kind of get to know some of the, the details or things that are going to happen. Um, you know, you can still be surprised. Um, and certainly the types of rain that we've seen or the type of heat that we've seen or sometimes the wind uh, that we've gotten has, uh, you know, gone above normal ranges or outside of the normal ranges. Um, But, you know, I've been here now 14 years. I've gotten to know this sort of piece of land pretty well and some of the weather patterns and, and noting their changes as well. So, you know, it's this November and December, um, have not been cold in the way that historically it might normally be, but there are certainly days or stretches of days where it's, you know, much warmer than it normally would be or, or you know, seasonably a bit colder than it would be. So, so and today is one of those days with that low 20s to start, and it really has only just gotten above freezing in the last hour or so here. What are you, uh, how, how are you, you know, proceeding in terms of, you know, the, the hoop houses, the high tunnels and, uh, you know, continuing to grow um, your uh, the greens and other, uh, you know, vegetables that you are supplying to uh, uh, farmers mm-hmm. markets and, and your own farm stand. So, so right now we've we've got um, you know inside our our high tunnel. So those are our unheated greenhouses, or also called hoop houses. Um, we have an additional layer of frost protection in there. So yesterday, um, before the end of the day, we covered up all the crops in there with that with the row cover, an extra layer of protection to keep things from freezing because we knew the temps were going to get down into the low twenties. But for the whole prior week, you know, nighttime temperatures weren't down that low. So um, we actually need all those crops to acclimate to colder temperatures so we don't cover them um, when it's, you know, just getting to 31 or 32 because we need that that lettuce, those carrots, the the kale, the collards. uh, We need them to, you know, winterize themselves and kind of acclimate to the colder temperatures. But but when we're going to get into the mid and low 20s, we'll we'll add on that that sort of extra layer of frost protection. And then, you know, if today were a sunny day, uh, it would have warmed up in in those tunnels right away. just with that one layer of plastic we have over over the hoops, and we would have uncovered um, to allow them to breathe, and so it doesn't get too hot in there, so that we don't build up con- condensation and end up with any sort of mildew or mold issues in there. And we would have opened the doors to ventilate, uh, but it stayed overcast here, and uh, 
So we haven't uncovered everything. We, we did a little bit of uncovering to access a few crops because we have our CSA distribution tomorrow and, and market on Saturday. So there's just a few things that we needed to get to. Um, you know, it's warm enough uh, for us to harvest, but, you know, had temps stayed below freezing, we don't typically do any harvest um, when temperatures are below freezing in the tunnels um, because the, the, the crops don't respond well to that. Mm. Uh, so we usually, we usually like them to, to wake up a little bit um, before we harvest um, them. They kind of, just like we do, we kind of uh, tighten up our bodies a little bit and then kind of gather in. Uh, when it's cold, you know, the crops kind of do that as well. We, we want to let them kind of open up, unravel a little bit before we, we do any harvesting in the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any activities your community activities celebrate the winter solstice, perhaps, or or anything else where folks gather at the farm, your programs that you might be planning for the winter? Well, we, you know, just last week we had kind of a little craft event at the farm. We, we had a, a pizza truck here and, and had a little crafting event in the barn. And I think lots of farms, you know, wherever you are in the state, I bet you can find someone, you know, doing a wreath-making workshop, having an opportunity, uh, to, you know, to engage in, in some kind of uh, on-farm activity. And, of course, lots of folks are out there, uh, you know, getting Christmas trees or, you know, um, and that's often a hands-on experience, whether you get to cut your own. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, we have the first night of Hanukkah. So you, you might find places that are, are doing lighting ceremonies, that, you know. Um, so I think there's lots of ways to engage. For, for us, the, the craft event last week was, I think, our our last event uh, of the year. You know, we, we have two more weeks of our CSA and, and two more weeks of market to go to before we take a break. Uh, but there's still lots, lots happening uh, throughout, you know, farms throughout the state. Yeah. L- well, let's get uh, Vincent K on the line and see uh, how he is uh, either done with his winter preparations or planning to uh, shut down operations. Vincent, are you with us? I am, Richard. Hi. How are you? Good. Uh, Hi, Vincent. It's been a while. Hello, Laura. How are you? Good, thanks. <laughs> Hello, Stephen. <laughs> I've got a couple of dogs here. We're, we're, let me, I'll probably have to tell them to uh, hang around at least once because they, they tend to wander. But we're, we're up in Prospect right now, and we're at a bee yard we just pulled in. And uh, we're at the top of a kind of large hill, um, which they've clear-cut a few years back. So one of the reasons we're here keeping bees is to take advantage in the regular growing season of the uh, the black wild raspberries, which are fantastic and produce a pr- fantastic honey. So, um, but uh, that's one of the successive growths that start after logging an area. You end up with a lot of brush and whatnot and raspberries. <laughs> so that's that's why we're here. <laughs> How do you mean, Vincent? I mean, uh, are those clearly they're not <laughs> blooming or? Or uh, still producing berries, or, or am I wrong about that? No, no, of course not. Now, we're here just to check the bees, which um, this is their home year-round. Um, and we're adding actually a wire to uh, an electric fence that we have surrounding the hives. Um, we've had a couple of challenges by bears um, in Madison and, uh, let's see, what other town... Um, uh, actually not too far from you, Steve, over there in Woodbridge. Um, and the fences held, so they worked really good. And, um, but you know, you sort of have to repair them after that. Uh, the bears get 
tangled up and kind of rip things apart. And, <laughs> and right now we're, we're working on a fence here that we feel needs another wire. Um, uh, what you want to do with these electric fences, it doesn't hurt the bear, it doesn't hurt wildlife, but you, you want to have enough, enough wire uh, space um, pretty close together uh, to form like a pen. Um, but if you, if you have, if they get zapped or snapped on the back of the head, it tends to push the animal through into the hives. Um, so we want to definitely, um, have enough wires where they get kind of zapped on the nose and, and pushed back away from the fence. So we, this one has only four wires. So we're adding another wire, checking the, uh, the battery, checking the solar panel, and we'll, um, kind of peek in the hives just to look, um, I found your conversation with Steve about weather kind of interesting because, boy, do we monitor the weather during the season. It's uh, it's so important for us to know, in particular, uh, the wind. It's very hard to work with bees in the wind, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, almost impossible. And, and you just like any other animal or critter, you have wind chill factors. So it may be, you know, <laughs> 55 degrees, but the wind may be 20 miles an hour, so that brings – what the livestock or the honeybees are feeling um, down to, you know, almost 40 degrees. So it's, it's tricky and you have to kind of monitor when you open the hives because they have a thermal layer of, of heat inside those hives built up. And as soon as you remove the lid, it goes gushing out and they've got to start over again, which means they have to uh, uh, consume quite a bit of honey or uh, food, whatever it may be to, uh, to regain that heat heat layer so that's kind of um, you know what we're doing now um it's not something you can just put down and walk away from and say okay winter now i can just relax (laughs) it doesn't work that way um to run it as a business and um there's always something you can make better there's always something especially with livestock that you can do to help them um sometimes we put um sheets of uh, black tar paper on the top of the hives to um to uh, again create a heat zone from the when the sun hits hits it, uh, it warms up the hives and it lets the bees have a little break on uh, on that. But it's it's definitely cold out here. I'm standing outside the truck now and it's uh, it's pretty chilly. So yeah, well, <clears throat> we don't want to keep you stationary too long. But uh, any other points you want to make about the the winter and how the bees are going to like how much. How much, how often do you have to check in on the bees in the course of the winter to make sure that they have a, <clears throat> excuse me they have enough food and that there um, you know there aren't any uh, I don't know what could ravage them in the course of the winter are there disease issues that could come up in the winter no 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 the, the brood rearing has is pretty much um, stopped um, by the queen in fact um, she'll totally stop laying eggs. Um, on the darkest day of the year, which is, of course, the solstice. And then as the days get a little bit longer, she'll start laying um, a pattern of eggs inside the hive, um, even though it's only small, size of a penny or a quarter. But it's, it's to begin replacing the bees that have, have died to, um, to exposure to the cold. And as the days get longer, she'll lay more and more eggs until the spring starts and the nectar flows start. And... Uh, so it's interesting um, because in some ways, I mean, <laughs> their temperature, um, they respond to temperature almost you know, immediately, but also to light. And um, the, days of, the length of the days are, are extremely important. Um, 
the only thing we can do now, we're, we're pretty much done feeding the bees. Um, we've done that, and that was a lot of work. Um, we found that in certain bee yards where we had good uh, fall blossoms, um, certain areas we know have huge fields and stands of certain certain flowers that bloom. Uh, where we are now is a huge uh, uh, ridge of uh, uh, goldenrod on one side. And then, of course, uh, the clear cut, which has a number of um, things growing, but really are spring flowers. But um, the goldenrod was extremely important here. And we noticed that the bees took on a huge amount of weight um, while the goldenrod was blooming. And that was great because it it meant we, we could almost stop feeding and uh, just let them do it themselves, which is the ideal scenario. Um, but um, things like the goldenrod and uh, the asters were a big plus, as well as the Japanese knotweed, a very big plus um, this year. And we had good weather, so the bees were able to forage and get to it. Good temperatures, so the bees were able to get to it. And it really pays off. Um, there's nothing like natural food, <laughs> um, both for our bottom line and for their health as well. But um we did feed um, a large amount of syrup this year. We have a lot of bees, so we have a lot, a lot to lose. I always tell my helpers, and uh, it's it can happen quickly. So you really have to monitor um, the hives, and what, the way we do that is by basically tipping or lifting the boxes to see um, or estimate or guesstimate um, how much food is left in that hive, um, minus sort of a net net food weight. Um, you know, minus the woodenware and, and the weight of the bees. So uh, we do that to every hive in every bee yard almost on a weekly basis. Um, so it's a lot of travel. It's it's beautiful country, but it's it's still a lot of travel. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so la- last question, Vincent. Uh, we were discussing, uh, you know, the other species such as uh, wasps, <clears throat> bumblebees, and uh, other types of Insect, yep. flying insects. Yep. Uh, tell us again, I know we've discussed this in the past, but remind us how many of them survive the winter? And if so, what, what's what's their strategy and uh, how many of them do not? Uh, give me just a split second. I need to call the dogs. Hold on. Guys, <laughs> over here in the truck. Kiko, Louie, come in the truck. Radio Verite. I love it. <laughs> you can't you can't write this stuff. No, it's just you can't make it up. I know. I'm sorry. Norman Norman Lear that just died, but but this is I know, al- almost I know. this is almost as good as, you know, like one of his <laughs> Thank you. All right. Your question, answering your question, I'll try my best. Um honeybees are the only insects known to survive as a unit, as a colony and in all their little efforts, they combine and put it together, and it reacts like a warm-blooded animal. So they're incredibly sensitive to changes in temperature, moisture, wind, all that stuff, as a warm-blooded animal would be. Um, insects, I mean, there's three categories of stinging insects, often get lumped into being called bees. Those are wasps, hornets, and honeybees, So, or, or bees in general. They're not just uh, Honeybees. What about bumblebees? bumblebees? Bumblebees are in that category, but none of them um, exist as a colony except during good weather where all of the variables don't really affect them. So, in other words, a wasp 
uh, as pretty much all of them, wasps, um, hornets, and even bumblebees, uh, all of them essentially, um, basically send off into the leaves and, and uh, compost and debris of, of the year, uh, the grass, uh, a mated female, the queen of, of whatever uh, nest they're going to create the next year. And that's, she's the only one that survives. That's it. The others will, will dwindle into the fall, but by now they're all, they're all pretty much dead. So um, they mm. had their day. Fantastic. <laughs> that, great. That's, that's the short answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah they Appreciate don't survive. And um, so they don't need each other's warmth. They don't need um, to collect and store food. Um, the bumblebees do a little bit during the season, but they use that food during the season. So the nest does not um, uh, winter over, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, that's, yeah. that's the, uh, the willy-nilly of it. Great. Well, Vincent, we we have we this have jam-packed yeah. program, so we're going to let you go well, and uh, appreciate you uh, standing there in the uh, bone-chilling cold out there to <laughs> give us this report. Thanks, Vincent. <laughs> You're welcome, and it's, it's a pleasure always. So take care, and, and happy solstice, and all the other holidays, Hanukkah and, and, and Christmas also. Oh, yeah, we, yeah. We'll, see you, we'll see you in January. And Kwanzaa. Yeah, yeah. Kwanzaa. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Thank, thank, thank you, you all. Yeah. Bye-bye. So, can, can, our, you know how to drop um, his call? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay. And then, I thought I did. There we go. Oh, well, you got to drop it. Okay. Great, you did. Okay, okay sorry. Um, so our guest this week is Frank Pagliaro. Um, he's going to tell us about the Weston meteorite, which was North America's first documented meteorite strike, and it fell on December 14th, um, 1807, and he's also going to discuss life and farming back then. Frank co-authored a piece with Monty Robeson, who's the founder of the McCarthy Observatory, for Meteoritics and Planetary Science Bulletin in September 2009 on the meteorite strewn field, which means where it fell. And he's on the board of the Eastern Historical Society, and he was, and now he's on the board of the town's cemetery committee and reviewing abandoned cemeteries trying to save historic properties. Welcome, Frank. Tell us about mm-hmm. life in 1807 when the meteorites struck. Okay. Um, well, it's... Life was a lot different. Um, one of the one of the things I do want to talk about the West and uh, the the idea that stones would fall from the sky um, was you know just not something that they could think of. I mean, they knew there were they knew there were different kinds of stones on the ground that they uh, and they knew about obviously uh, shooting stars and things like that, uh, but they didn't put the two things together. In fact, really nobody did. Um, Centuries ago, the Egyptians and Chinese, uh, ancient Chinese, uh, Mesoamericans, um, the Greeks, they they had put that together. Um, but, you know, all that kind of information was lost in the intervening centuries. Um, so when uh, when stones fell from the sky, when the when this Western meteorite uh, fell, it was a it was a big deal. Um, again, it was the first, like you said, the uh, first recorded uh, documented fall of a meteorite in North America. Um, just prior to this, in the previous century or two, um, as science was developing, um, uh, more more people were studying what was happening, and there were uh, several instances uh, in India, in Russia, 
uh, in England and Italy, uh, where stones fell from the sky uh, and people witnessed the falling of the of the stones and and started to put that together. Scientists in Europe were were studying, as they were studying a lot of other scientific things. They were studying um, astronomy and uh, and uh, the natural world um, and making sense of it. Um, there was a lot of obviously there was a lot of uh, superstition about of why things happened. Uh, they were trying to figure these things out. Um, and uh, in 1803, uh, in France, um, an enormous meteor fall, uh, thousands of, of pieces of meteor fell in a town called Lagle, um, and that was very heavily studied. Uh, and that was just prior to this, this fall. So um, when Benjamin Silliman was directed, uh, he was the, the newly appointed uh, chemistry uh, professor at Yale College. Um, his boss, Timothy Dwight, uh, sent him and um, an English professor, uh, James Kingsley, uh, to Weston um, uh, to, to get some information, to collect uh, samples and, and do a study. Um, and so they showed up here. Um, they showed up a little late. Uh, I think it was about two weeks after the actual fall uh, that they got to Easton. Um, I, I actually, this is probably a good point to point, just a moment to point out. It's called the Weston because when the meteorites, uh, when the meteorites fell, uh, the town of Easton was part of the town of Weston. It was one big town called Weston, made up of two parishes um, from Fairfield. And um, so because the stone fell in what was Weston at the time, the name Weston has stuck with it. But in fact, none of the uh, meteorite fell in what is today Weston. It all fell mm. in the eastern part of Easton uh, and a little bit in Trumbull and uh, Monroe. <clears throat> anyway, um, they came to town hoping to, you know, uh, to get as many samples as they could, but they got uh, they got beat by uh, Isaac Bronson from Greenfield Hill, who only had to travel a couple of miles to get to Easton, <laughs> whereas they came all the way from New Haven. Um, but they got here. Bronson had collected a number of pieces um, and done some interviews with people. And um, and when uh, Silliman and um, and Kingsley got here, they did the same. Uh, like I said, they missed out on a few a few precious pieces, uh, but they did collect quite a bit. And they spoke to people. Um, like I said, from uh, up in Monroe in the upper Stepney area, uh, all the way down to um, uh, uh, Lower Morehouse Road, where it, where it adjoins Fairfield uh, on Congress Street, uh, and all the way in between. Um, and that basically uh, sets out what is called the strewn field, or the, the place where uh, the majority of the uh, meteorite pieces fall. It's called a strewn field. It's in a, it's a giant ellipse. This one happens to be about uh, eight miles long and about three or four miles wide. Um, and it's centered on what is now the Eastern Reservoir. Um, hmm. So they got to town. Uh, that Nathan Wheeler, um, who was a judge of probate at the time and also a town clerk, um, they interviewed him. He, had, he gave the, the best description of what he saw. He wasn't actually collect any of the meteorite pieces because he wasn't in that strewn field. But he happened to be out at six o'clock in the morning um, on December four, uh, December fourteenth, and uh, he was out. There was a full moon setting, uh, and all of a sudden the sky lit up. And he looks up, and there's a there's something like coming from the north, almost directly overhead. Uh, Half of about about half the size or two thirds of the size of the the full moon, uh, with a tail about ten times as long, um, and he's watching it 
shoot overhead uh, as it slowly disappears through these through the clouds, uh, the scattered clouds that day, and um, and then it disappears and it's followed by like three enormous booms, which probably were the, the meteorite exploding also at past the speed of sound. So remember sonic booms? Remember when we were kids, we used to hear sonic booms all the time. That's probably what they heard. Um, and then there was a, a rumble, you know, the, the the echo going down through the valleys back. The meteorite exploded over New, what's today New Milford, uh, and the pieces landed, you know, 20 miles south uh, in in the area of Easton. Um, and so they interviewed him about that, and he just it was very interesting. He described a lot of things in terms of cannonballs. I guess you know, 50 years on from the Revolutionary War, um, they were still thinking in terms of, of weaponry. But uh, he described that the the booms as sounding like a four pounder can- cannon. Uh, he described the uh, the the sound of the the uh, the rolling thunder as as a, a cannonball rolling across a floor. Um, the that kind of thing is kind of interesting, but. Um, yeah, they talked to him, um, several other families around town, uh, the princes. Uh, they found they they were uh, awake at the time, but they didn't. Um, they weren't out to see anything. Uh, in the morning, they went out to their yard, and there was a uh, a hole in the front yard. <clears throat> and so the William Prince, uh, the father, said, uh, "Who dug this post hole in the yard?" And nobody knew what he was talking about. Uh, later on, the, uh, it also happened to be the um, uh, town meeting day, and they came back from town meeting, and the sons were talking about uh, stones falling around town. So they went and they dug up this hole in the front yard, and sure enough, in this hole was a 35-pound um, fragment of the meteorite. Uh, but again, this is you know 1807, and uh, people didn't really know much about science, so they took this thing and broke it up into the little pieces, thinking that it might contain gold and silver, hmm. which and they do not. They contain mostly... Uh, uh, nickel iron. Um, some of the other, one of my favorites, um, the lower, the lowest portion where the largest uh, portion of the meteorite fell was uh, on Elijah Seely's farm um, at the bottom of Morehouse Road and uh, where it joins um, Congress Street. Um, he was uh, he was at home. They heard, they saw the lights. He heard the noises. Didn't really think anything of it. Uh, until around 10 o'clock, he went out, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, he went out to go check on his cows. And he went to the field where he had left them, and they were no longer in that field. They had jumped at the stone fence <laughs> into, a, into another field, an adjoining field. And it, as, as, um, as it was described in Silliman's report, they, they uh, showed strong indications of terror, which I guess <laughs> you got to be some kind of farmer to be able to recognize terror in a cow's face. Uh, but anyway, he got there, and there's this, uh, what was a, a turfed over field, um, now had a hole uh, about three feet deep and five feet long, uh, four feet wide, with dirt thrown around for 100 feet. Uh, and in there was about a bushel's worth of um, meteorite fragments. Um, and the meteorite uh, was basically collected. People would come and, and just picked up pieces and took them home for their, you know, uh, as souvenirs. Uh, when Silliman got there, he was disappointed that he couldn't collect anything. Uh, the biggest fragment, which is still, um, and which is still the biggest fragment, uh, was eventually recovered uh, in Trumbull on Toshua Hill. Um, and that's at the, at the El Peabody Museum right now. Um, that weighed uh, 36 and a half pounds when they found it. Um, 
And now with the pieces have been sliced off and sent all around the world uh, because it is such a famous uh, meteorite. Uh, it weighs now about 25 pounds, uh, but you can go up there and, and, and see it anytime. Uh, it's really quite amazing. It's sitting uh, out outside someplace? Me? No. the, oh, the we did outside. Oh. That, that, that <laughs> chunk. No, no, it's, it's not that big. So it's 25 pounds. Uh, it's about the size of a, a basketball, I guess. Um, and it's sitting, uh, the last time I saw it, it was in its own case, uh, on the top floor of the, of the museum, but I understand okay. that they've done, uh, they've done some work in the last couple of years, so it may be somewhere else now, but it's definitely inside. Yeah. Um, unfortunately they don't seem to last very long, uh, in the, in the natural world. Um, they, they tend to, um, break down, uh, the rust, uh, the iron rusts out. So, hmm. uh, fortunately this piece was found. Um, Could- Oh, go ahead, Laura. Oh, no, I just um, wanted to touch a little bit on farming um, because you you had once told me that in the early 19th century when um, when the meteorite struck, the farming was not much different than in the 14th century. Yeah. And which I thought was interesting. And from the the work that you've done looking into all this, what do you think are the biggest um, advances or just changes in farming? Or, or, well, or yeah, maybe describe a little bit about farming practices yeah, back in yeah. 1807 so, or whatever. So yeah, what Laura said is true. Is that it really things hadn't changed much in the previous 500 years. Um, but there was, you know, it was a, a man behind a wooden plow with a with an iron blade um, and, a, and a and a and a wooden mold board, uh, you know, plowing. Um, their farms had tended to be small uh, because an acre, you know, an acre was was defined as what one man with one team of oxen could plow in one day. Uh, so most of the the farms around here were small, less than forty acres, and and those forty acres were made up of not just uh, you know plowable land, but you know woodlot uh, and and uh, and feedlots and that kind of thing. So they you know they they had really small um, lands. Um, they they did all their, um, for example, the cultivating, um, they did with a hoe. You know, they went out and, and hoed the land, um, hand, harvesting, went hand, out with a You're talking about a hand, hand-held hoe. Hand-held hoe, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or harvesting was done with a, you know, with a scythe, with a hand-held scythe. Uh, an advancement in the scythe was when they, they came up with cradle scythes, where you had more than one blade, so you could, you know, do a little bit more, but... Um, yeah, a lot of it was just, it, it hadn't changed. Um, and interestingly, you know, we're talking about the science behind the, the, the meteorite and, and the things that were being studied at the time. This is the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you know, a lot of the tools that they used, they made at home, uh, or they had, you know, metal tools might be, they might have blades or something uh, fashioned by a, a local blacksmith, uh, or they would make their own. Uh, but as, as, uh, industry Im- improved, um, and there were more manufacturing. Uh, there were also m- more innovations. Uh, people were people saw that they could make. Uh, so you had uh, the steel plow, for example, came into to use. Much later, though, people held on to those wooden plows with their iron blades because they were afraid of you know that that an all steel plow. And here we go. There might somehow contaminate the soil. Uh, there was a sense of science, but like. A misguided sense, I think. Um, hay rakes, uh, you know, when when um, when they would go and um, and uh, uh, harvest, uh, say hay, um, 
somebody would follow the the person with the scythe would cut down the hay, then there would be somebody behind them that would take it and bundle it all up and leave it out uh, to you know to to uh, to be ready for to to be threshed later or to be stored. Um, it was it wasn't until the 1840s or 1850s that the idea of a horse rake came along, where um, what looks like a giant rake on wheels behind a horse that would pull and collect up all those uh, all those sheaves of, of hay. Um, another thing, and you think when you think of farms, you imagine a barn and this tall silo next to the barn, but that tall silo didn't; those tall silos didn't appear until after the 1860s, the 1870s. Prior to that, uh, food stored for for uh, feeding cattle was stored underground in small amounts or it was stored outside in giant hay ricks that you would then, you know, take a hay knife and cut out what you needed uh, on a daily basis to feed your cattle in the, in the wintertime. Uh, the silage, the idea of silage and how, you know, filling a silo with, with, uh, with materials that would then ferment into a, into a usable food didn't occur until the late 19th century. Um, Things like wells, uh, you know, well pumps didn't appear until the middle of the. So at the beginning of the 19th century, really things were very much, you know, like they had been for 500 years. There just wasn't any innovation for some reason. Uh, I think people were so busy trying to make a living off the land that they had, especially here in New England, where, you know, we have a a seasonal harvest of uh, New England potatoes in the form of uh, glacial (laughs) rocks. I think they were having such a hard time getting through each year that they didn't have time to, you know, to mm. sit down and come up with these innovations until a little later. Can you talk a little bit about the demographics, the population at that period when the meteorite struck? I, and also just maybe you're, you're kind of disabusing us of the idea that meteorite, you know, the, the meteorite is this one huge object that all hits, you know, at, of a piece in one spot. It sounds like, as you say, it exploded. Yeah. And, and is that, uh, yeah, so that sounds like, and that's um, probably. Yeah, in fact, that people ask me, in fact, uh, last year um, I did an event um, and somebody came in with a piece that they had found, uh, which it, 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 I said, the only way to really find out is doing a chemical analysis and you, know, you have to go down to Yale and ask them to do that. With it. Uh, but, uh, he found a, a rock that that uh, was attracted to the magnet, which is often the case uh, with these stony iron meteorites. Um, and so there there could still be pieces out there uh, that did survive. Like I said, it, it, it's kind of unlikely, but I'm you know I'm not an ex- exactly an expert on on chemistry, so it's possible they did. Um, as far as the demographics, um, honestly. Most people back then were uh, Anglo. Uh, they came from, you know, their 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 families uh, came over in the in the early uh, 17th century, uh, and they moved like everybody else from Massachusetts down the Connecticut River uh, and to Fairfield, and from Fairfield north into into what was Easton that became Easton. Um, there were uh, very few enslaved people here in in uh, in Easton at the time, uh, well, there were Frank. I, I, let me interrupt because we really are down to uh, time. Got away from us. We're oh, down sure, to sure. Uh, just a moment or two. We must continue this conversation in a subsequent interview. Uh, but I want to thank uh, Frank Pagliaro for for joining us. Laura, last word. Um. Uh, yeah, I wanted to say thank you. 
This is the Gaiagram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. U.S. Climate Envoy John Curry said countries must prioritize the fight to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius after it was revealed the COP28 president claimed there was no science behind calls for a phase-out of fossil fuels. In comments first recorded by The Guardian, an investigative journalism organization, the Center for Climate Reporting, COP28 president and United Arab Emirates climate chief Sultan Ali Jaber suggested a fossil fuel phase-out would not allow sustainable development unless you want to take the world back to the caves. And he said that blaming the oil and gas industry for the climate crisis is like blaming farmers for obesity. The remarks, which were made by the Sultan during a live online event on November 21st, were described as farcical by climate scientists. The G7 countries voted that there should be a phasing out of unmitigated fossil fuel emissions, and what there is science for is keeping 1.5 degrees as your North Star. Former U.S. Vice President Al Gore said Sunday that fossil fuel interests have effectively seized the reins of the United Nations climate summit process, preventing the kind of ambitious action that scientists say is necessary to prevent catastrophic warming and all of its cascading impact. Gore told Reuters this industry is way more effective at capturing politicians than they are at capturing emissions. Now, according to a poll released last week by Potential Energy, the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and other organizations, Earth is about 2 degrees Fahrenheit hotter on average than it was in the 1800s. Four out of five people around the world, some 78% of those polled, agreed that it is essential to do whatever it takes to limit the effects of climate change. The research also gauged what messages resonated with people the most. The best one? Later is too late. According to new data from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, solar capacity has grown faster in U.S. electrical generation than all other energy sources in the first three quarters of 2023. While solar's share of the total installed U.S. generating capacity still trails wind, it rapidly is closing in on that of hydropower. Taken altogether, the installed capacity of all renewable sources, including biomass and geothermal, was 28.3% of the U.S.'s total at the end of the first nine months of 2023, up 27% from a year earlier. The company Airbus will renew the entire fleet of chartered vessels that transport aircraft sub-assemblies between production facilities in Europe and the United States, with three modern low-emission roll-on, roll-off vessels supported by wind-assisted propulsion. Airbus has commissioned shipowner Louis Dreyfus Amateurs to build, own, and operate these new, highly efficient vessels that will enter into service from 2026. The new fleet is expected to reduce average annual transatlantic CO2 emissions from 68,000 to 33,000 tons by 2030. This will contribute to Airbus's commitment to reduce its overall industrial emissions by up to 63% by the end of the decade. Democratic Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer enacted one of the country's most aggressive state-level green energy mandates last week. Whitmer, 
signed legislation to put Michigan on the path to 100% green energy generation by 2040. The Clean Energy and Jobs Act commits the state to achieving 100% green energy generation by 2040 and includes legislation that enables the state's utility regulator to supersede local governments to cite green energy infrastructure. And finally, an entire county school system in coal-producing West Virginia is going solar. The solar installation is the latest school-related green energy project to come to the state with the help of the Biden administration-era spending package called the Inflation Reduction Act. This was the Gaiagram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. WPKN programming is supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash en. Hi, I'm Lydia Lovelace, and you're listening to WPKN Bridgeport.